Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Before we get started, I just want to let you know, this episode is brought to you by Buckaroo Media, a digital marketing company that focuses on social media that cultivates relationships between brands and their customers. Buckaroo Media prides themselves on building genuine and authentic connections. Digital marketing doesn't have to be overwhelming or overly time-consuming. With Buckaroo Media on your team, you're free to focus on the areas of your business which you're most passionate about, and let Buckaroo Media handle the rest. Check them out on Instagram at buckaroo.media or Facebook at Buckaroo Media. For more information about Buckaroo Media and how they can grow your Western brand, visit buckaroomedia.com. B-U-C-K-A-R-O-O-M-E-D-I-A.com. Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned. We're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to episode 60 here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. Our guest this week is Paige Calloway. As you know, on this show, we focus a lot about how the horse can improve an individual's life. And one of the greatest benefits for me as the host is getting to meet the phenomenal people of this industry. What's incredible is the multitude of talents that many of our guests have. And in this episode, we talk a little bit about Paige and her horses, but we spend the greater part of this episode talking about the entrepreneurial spirit Paige displays towards her clothing brand, Page 1912. Now, if you have no idea what Western high fashion is, this is the episode for you. Before sitting down with Paige, I didn't have a clue as to what went on into making clothes. However, I found the concepts and processes explained by Paige to be very fascinating. As always, you can find the podcast on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you find this content valuable, please share it with a friend. Additionally, your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice would mean the world to us. We hate to keep you all waiting any longer. Here is our conversation about Western fashion with Paige Calloway. It was good. Um, I was pretty exhausted from the weekend and I think Matt was too. And he was just finishing up um, the last week of work and then he's now done for the winter. So we just kind of took it easy that first few days and caught up on some rest and talked about the event. And it was a phenomenal event, like obviously Matt's first Colt starting competition, but to be a part of something that great. And of course, Nikki does such a great job of events and the production was next level. We met so many great people. It was it was a really good time. We were thankful to be a part of it. No, I was blown away by the whole entire event. I mean, the weekend was incredible. And uh, Matt had to be pretty pumped with his performance because the work that he did on day two, like I was literally in awe. I was just sitting at the booth staring at that pen the whole time. I mean, he made some <laughs> huge, huge strides with that with that horse. Yeah, he did. And that's something I admire about Matt is he, no matter what horse he's on, like whether it's his broke saddle horse or my barrel horses or Colt, he just meets that horse where they're at. And I find that it it takes that horse so much further or they cover so much ground because he's just wherever that horse needs to be without an agenda he's there for it and working with it, which is kind of neat. And I think, you know, that colt he got, I think it'll be a really cool horse. I'm excited to see it down the road, Yeah. but it was a little bit tougher minded. And, um, I'm glad that, you know, Matt got the opportunity to work with something like that. That really made him think about some things and, and it turned out good. I think that's a heck of a horse. No, it was awesome to see, see everything. And like you talked about, and I know in my experience, the same thing, once you start to, I mean, you got to show up with a plan, right? When you're going to work with a horse, but rather than forcing the agenda, kind of let the horse tell you what the need is and then 
like you said, mm-hmm. meeting it where it's at and working on whatever comes up that day is, is where the success really lies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's something I've been working to apply in my own world with my barrel horses and with what I do, because I find when you do have an end target or an end goal, but you can kind of meet the horse where they're at and work together that way, it, it really gives them an opportunity to show up for you. Yeah. Rather than just pushing a timeline. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. So what does entail for winter for you guys? Um, we're still kind of sorting that out. Matt's got outside horses here for the month of October, and then he's got a ranch rodeo and some stuff going on in November, all the while recording some music. I think we're going to try to go to Arizona and or Texas come the new year. And I, I have a new line of clothes coming out here, hopefully by the end of October and a fashion show, the end of October. And then, um, then my schedule somewhat relaxes uh, which will probably mean my horse schedule relaxes a little bit by the end of October, which will probably mean more work and getting stuff ready for a January launch of clothes and yeah, continuing the flow of things. So we are definitely going to spend a lot of time talking about your brand page 1912, but to give listeners a little context of who you are and where you come from, let's talk about your start with horses and, and we'll work through the evolution, evolution to, to fashion. Okay. I, I was lucky when I was growing up, my grandpa had a ranch in Break Creek and I spent most of my child, a lot of my childhood there. And then when I was in school, we'd always make deals that he'd pick me up from the bus on Friday and I'd go stay with at the ranch till Sunday when I had to go home for school on Monday. So I kind of grew up more in the ranching side of things. Um, and then as I was of age to go to 4-H, then I started into 4-H and through 4-H, I met a lot of great people. One, uh, his name was Bruce Debnam. He was quite a mentor for a long time, and he was really a well-versed horseman with more of the Pirelli. And at that time, it seemed kind of newer age horsemanship. Mm-hmm. So I had the opportunity to learn that, and our 4-H club was really active. So I did everything from going to reining clinics and, you know, roping clinics and did all sorts of uh, areas in 4-H and did, of course, the shows and showed English and Western and did small hunter jumper classes and kind of had a sample at everything. And then when I was in high school, I started high school rodeo and I started trick riding about that time. And then from high school rodeo, I went to school down in Texas and got a degree in communications and was rodeoing down there and still trick riding. And uh, I spent a few more years after I graduated down in Texas before coming home. And when I came home, I worked up here for a few years in the oil and gas industry. And then I went back to fashion school. And here in Calgary, it's a couturier school. So it's kind of like tailoring, but the kind of the next level, it's very particular and high-end fashion. And from there, that's when I started my uh, brand Pursue Victory. And then a couple of years ago, I had the kind of sub-brand page 1912 flare out. So I've always had horses throughout. I think now I have an opportunity as business gets a little more level um, to invest more of my time into them, but I have maintained having horses around. I think that's kind of what's given me my sanity as an entrepreneur. I was going to say you and me both. I want to ask you one (laughs) question though. How does one even get started with trick riding? Because for me to like, hey, let's just go jump on this horse that flies around the arena and we might... (laughs) hang off the side of them or hang off the back of them or vault off of it. Like it's all incredible stuff. Yeah. I, 
Well, growing up like through 4-H and trying, kind of trying everything I could with horses as far as disciplines and learning. Um, and then in high school, I guess I started trick riding about grade eight or nine. And I actually saw Nikki Flundra, who was Nikki Kamard at the time, trick riding at a rodeo. And I went up and asked her if she'd give me some lessons. And of course, I think I trick rode with her once or twice, but that was right when Nikki was like gone every weekend. She was very busy on the road as a trick rider. So I uh, contacted Jerry Deuce and she's a phenomenal trick rider. She's a wonderful cowgirl. And she had just, it was like my sister and I, and there was actually Madison McDonald who will be at the NFR this year. And I think another one or two other girls, that was kind of the start of Jerry's trick riding school. And then this group of kids kind of came up and we all put practice trick riding once a week and under the instruction of Jerry. And then as I went down to college, I obviously wasn't up here practicing with them, but at that point, I had both my PRCA and CPRA cards to trick ride. So when I went down to college in Texas, I was booking shows down there and uh, managed to travel quite a bit in the States and trick ride. And I think it was, you know, watching Nikki, of course, she's beautiful and she's an athlete and she's a horsewoman. So for any younger girl looking, it's like, what, what would it take to be like Nikki? <laughs> and that, <laughs> that's not, that a, was, not a bad role model to follow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was kind of the kickstart of it. And I mean, truth be known, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Like I'm, I think I'm two jumps away from being a licensed skydiver and I do love a little bit of adrenaline. So that really? was also a that's good crazy. segue for that's me. It's one thing I've always yeah. wanted to do and never had the opportunity. <clears throat> oh, it's Jumped awesome. Out of a plane. Yeah, it's so fun. That is crazy. I know when we were up at Heart of the Horse, that was the first time. I mean, I've seen trick riding performances right at different rodeos and events and things of that sort. But at that event was the first time I was really that close to any of it. And I mean, those horses are flat getting after it running through the arena. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And those uh, Shelby and Shelby who are trick riding there, they're both phenomenal trick riders. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because Canada has so many trick riders. And I think it was just, you know, Jerry, Jerry Deuce and her sister Joy used to be the flying deuces and they kind of cultivated a few Kelly King and, uh, Jennifer Hay and some others along with them. And then there was kind of the Nikki and there was a handful there. And like we, I guess it was probably four or five years ago, I had retired from trick riding, um, but myself and some other people started the Canadian Trick Riding Association oh, really? to kind of keep the sport going. And yeah. it's still running. Um, I My last year as presidency was last year, so I've been out of it just one year. But they have competitions all throughout the summer and they have their finals. I think it's this weekend. And uh, it gives people an opportunity for to go learn how to trick ride in a safe environment, get constructive feedback and kind of uh, cultivate the the sport and keep it going. No, I was absolutely in awe of the work. I mean, that whole performance Saturday night was just absolutely incredible, but the trick riding was uh, uh, very amazing to watch. Yeah, that was a great show. I love watching. I love dressage. I think that's so impressive. I really enjoyed that part of it. That horse was so athletic. Oh, So, so athletic. It was impressive. Yeah. All of it. So how do we go... Where does the fashion first start to to pique its interest for you? I mean, because you have very strong background in horses, right? And even going to school in Texas there. Where does the fashion start to introduce itself? Um, well, you know, I've always been kind of a person who enjoyed fashion in high school. I would tie-dyed a pair of pants like Sid Steiner's. And I was always kind of had a had a bit of a motivation to do stuff like that. And then 
I started, I had a brand before Pursue Victory called Wild Rose Clothing, and I was actually coming home from a rodeo in Florida, and that was, I was trick riding at a rodeo in Florida, and I had gotten my second wreck then, and so it was kind of on my mind that I might be getting towards the end of my career, and I had this idea to start a graphic t-shirt business, and this is like back kind of before graphic t-shirts were what they are today, Mm -hmm. and uh so I started that and I had Wild Rose Clothing and I ran it off Facebook and I don't even know, I guess I did get a website towards the end of it, but it did really well for me. And as I was back up here, I had somebody tell me about this fashion school in Calgary. And one of my holdbacks with Wild Rose Clothing was I could do like graphic design on the computer, but I wasn't sure how to construct or sew garments that I would like to design. So I went to this couturier school, Ecole Holt Couture, it's called, and learned about garment construction and pattern making. And it was through that that then I got into manufacturing tailored fit shirts for it was originally to be for women who rode horses um, because I grew up and it was always like you go into the change room to try on a shirt and you swing your arm like, can I rope in this? No, but I could probably run barrels in this. Okay, it's worth it. <laughs> and it's like Buying shirts by event. I love it. <laughs> yeah, trying to find something that fits. And then the first semester of Couturier school, they're like, here's how you make a blouse and here's how to properly hang a sleeve so you have mobility in your arms and here's how to fit a lady here, here, and here. And I'm like, I thought this was like groundbreaking information, but it turns out it's not. It's an <laughs> old, old way of making shirts that gets lost when you um, mass produce and yeah, you're, you're watching production. your bottom dollar. Yeah, it starts to dilute. Yeah, so that was kind of my MO when I started Pursue Victory is to take the concept of a tailored fit shirt and provide it to everybody at a price point that people, anybody could go into a store and get. And so even though my shirts aren't designed specifically for a person, because of the way they're constructed, they will fit almost anybody, like the size scaling will fit nearly anybody properly. Um so that was that was kind of my start into it. And going from couturier, which I was only trained for about a year in that, into manufacturing, it's very different. Like couture is everything is handmade and you do up uh, uh, like a kind of a practice one out of just cotton and you do two or three fittings out of that before you cut out of the textile you're going to sew the garment out of. And it's got – there's a lot of like even putting together a shirt collar is a very – long and tedious procedure for this quality of fashion. And so when I kind of take the basics of it and, and turn it into what can be manufactured, um, that's kind of where the line came from. And I was fortunate when I made that transition, I went and looked at three different manufacturers here in Calgary. And the one that I chose, this lady, her name was Dorothy. She was, she just like educated me in manufacturing and what seams are worthwhile and how to do my size runs more effectively. And it was really a, you know, kind of a God thing that I crossed paths with her because she set me up for manufacturing and the information I have now that I use on a day-to-day basis. So that was going to be my biggest question in listening to this, to how well tailored the, how well tailored the clothes are, right? One off. And obviously the, the struggle of keeping up with production, right. And, and how you bridge that gap. Um, was that a difficult yeah. transition to make or, or how does that take place? Right. Cause you want to make sure that these clothes are of quality, but you're not, you don't have weeks to sit there and make one shirt at a time. Yeah, exactly. And that's why um, there's some basic things I did, like how the shoulders fit, how the sleeve ties into the bodice of the shirt, and then the length of the bodice and the sleeve that have been kind of my pillars of the 
of constructing them. And so the patterns that I have, they're now in a computer program that we send to the factory that we use. Um, those patterns can be sewn at somewhat of a mass scale while maintaining the integrity of a tailored fit shirt. And with that in mind, like I do manufacture here in Calgary, so I can go in and watch production, check up on things, make sure the colors and the styles and everything is what I would like it to be. And I try to manufacture um, large volumes, but with multiple colors within that large volume so that when you go to a barrel race, there's not 10 girls wearing the same shirt as you, you know, there is some authenticity within the, within the styles. And that's kind of also how page 1912 stemmed out of it is because pursue victory is your just a classic fitted collar cuff shirt. There's no pockets. There's just a logo, um, darts, very clean and tidy. And generally I do those in a solid color. And then, the design side of me was getting more curious and wanted to expand. So I came up with page 1912 and the, the whole idea of the brand is like the wild West meets high fashion. So the 1912 is the year of the first Calgary stampede. And it's also the year Coco Chanel opened her first shop in Paris. So it's kind of the bridge of these two worlds. I wish I lived in a hundred years ago. That's pretty interesting. I like that. Yeah, thank you. And then I took that same shirt pattern and then I added the ruffles and the neckties and the different um, styles to it so that there was more um, more styles to offer for the for people. So as you're going through this process, I mean, are you making a lot of your templates like with actual physical material or is everything digital now? Everything's digital now. And that was something when I started, I sewed my prototypes and I know I hand draft my patterns on paper and with a pencil. I don't know how to use CAD systems or computer drafting systems. So when I took my first, like, here's my size runs, here's my prototypes and my samples, it was all paper and nothing was digital. And so we transferred every, or the manufacturer transferred it all into digital. And then now I'm adjusting some of my sizes and we're developing a new style to be released this fall. And I have somebody in Calgary, um, she's very well versed in multiple drafting programs and she's doing the work for me because I, that's not my forte. I hand draft patterns and I'm kind of old school when it comes to that. I was going to say, everybody's got to run their own race, right? Yeah. You start getting yeah. involved in too much of it and, and then you start to lose the, the quality. So how, how many people do you have working for you? How many people are on your team? I mean, it seems like there's a lot going on to, to get these clothes produced. Yeah, there is a fair amount going on. And, you know, from day one, the whole reason I kind of wanted to start a business of my own is because I would like to have a form of income that I wasn't tied to and I could go rodeo or go work horses or own a breeding program or have a life outside but still had an income coming in. And um, so almost everything in this business is a system in a process or in place that I'm the only one. I have a salesperson worked for me a little bit the past two years and her and I are still great friends and hopefully we can work stuff out down the road again, but everything is just kind of on my shoulders. And, um, I have a big manual that I joke if anything ever happens to me, I have a big binder on my desk (laughs) and it literally says like, here's where to order textiles. Here's how to order them. Like the whole process of manufacturing and website updating. Um, so somebody could kind of take this binder and run with it. So I think it's absolutely incredible when you when you talk about first addressing 
a need, right, with with malfitting clothes, especially in the performance horse world, where you're doing stuff that's a lot more athletic, and then obviously feeding your your need for fashion or your desire for fashion. It's impressive to see it all come to light in in, in this blend of of a brand. Thank you. Yeah, and I, as I said, it set out to serve you know women who rode performance horses or horses, and then. Um, it's expanded and I would say I have as much of an urban demographic as a rural. And part of that is I've had the opportunity in the last two years to work with Hudson's Bay in Calgary. Um, it started during the stampede and then now it's expanded and I have floor space in there year round this year. So that's like downtown, you get lots of tourism and lots of the urban clientele. And these shirts are transitional that it's not like they're so Western. They don't fit in, in an office They're um, suited for both. So it's, uh, it's kind of been a nice expansion that I didn't foresee coming to expand into more of an urban fashion forward demographic. So in your experience, um, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult challenge, right? To, to be an entrepreneur, right? And with that comes the liberties of kind of your own schedule yet in the same breath, right? It, your business never really turns off, right? You're always working on something, whether it be a phone call or an email or your mind's involved in it. So for you mm-hmm. and your experience, how have you how have you found balance in the fashion side of it and still being involved with your horses? Or is there a parallel between the two, working with horses and working in fashion? Um, I think it's definitely, it's been, honestly, it's been a struggle and I feel like I'm finally getting a little bit of headway on it. I am also a perfectionist and a bit of a workaholic and I love my work. So I have no problem working 12 hours a day all day long. Like that doesn't phase me. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, and I've actually, I would say in the last five years kind of had two health crises that have made me check myself. And more recently, um, this summer I've really been kind of from spring till summer. I took last winter off because I had some health problems and I was exhausted and couldn't work. So I just kind of was Matt's shadow last winter. And it was a nice opportunity to kind of step back and think about what am I going to do? What do I want to do? And how do I want to spend my, my time? Because there is this stigma that, you know, entrepreneurs, you work for yourself, like choose the, what 16 hours of the day you want to work. And when I look back, it's like, I, when I set out to start this business, I set out to give myself freedom not to become a slave to it. And if I'm going to do this, I need to set those boundaries. So I now have like work times that I work these two or three days a week between these hours and I make them specifically scheduled and then I do what else I need to do and I schedule in my horse time. And I've been a little bit more, um, intentional with my timing based on a schedule, but that's a, that's a hard balance, right? Because especially when you start a business, you're hoping the best for it. So you feel like the more time I invest, the better it will be. And sometimes that's not the case, you know, like if you can show up for six or eight hours a day, five days a week, and you're healthy and happy and inspired, you're going to wake work way harder than pouring your life into it seven days a week, you know? And that's the biggest struggle I think in in life in general is finding balance in all of it, right? How do you find, how do you find the balance of being a good spouse and a good horseman or a good horsewoman or an entrepreneur or an employee, right? Or parent, right? All of this Mm -hmm. stuff comes with balance. And, and I have a bit pretty busy schedule myself. And people always ask the question, you know, like, when do you sleep or when do you find time for this or that? And 
I'm of the same mindset you are. Like when it's time to do task A, we do task A. We do it as hard as we can for whatever given time I've allotted for it. And then when we move on to the next task, then we focus on that and and finding that balance, which is tough because I went through the same exact problem of of over investing in some of these things, right? And then you become burnt out. And when you become burnt out, mm-hmm. you're good to nobody or nothing. So yeah. I think it's cool that it's great that you found it, but I'm sure it absolutely came at a cost, right? Because that's usually something, because it's a foreign concept. It's hard for people to understand. Like, if you put less into this, you'll actually be better. It's it's yeah. contrary, right? It's, it is a total backwards thing. And really having that balance parallels what I do with my horses, because if I get so invested in my horses and where we're going and what we're doing... Sometimes the ability to step back and be like, right, I have this whole business here that requires my attention. It's like, okay, you know, like a not a great run at the jackpot last night isn't the end of the world. Yeah. I have a different perspective of it. Here's my tactic going forward. And and same with the business, you know, when I can go out and ride and work my horses or go to a barrel race and then I can come back to the business, it's like this kind of re-inspired thing of like, oh, here's an idea or this isn't such a big deal anymore. And I think having that balance and and fortunately having both to go back and forth to does give me perspective and kind of the bird's eye view on things. So some of the problems I think are problems today when I look back tonight after I work horses probably aren't going to be an issue. And it's for me, the light bulb moment, I was riding with a mentor of mine and we'd accomplished what we set out for. It was relatively soon into the work. I mean, we were only maybe 10, 15 minutes into it. And he said, you're done for the day. And I'm like, we're like 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in. Like I have a whole day of riding horses that I got to get, get done. And he said, the biggest thing that people don't understand or have a hard time understanding is knowing when to unsaddle and walk away. You know, you want to leave mm-hmm. on that high note and you want to leave with the momentum that can be carried into the next, and then the next session. You know, if I would have found the success with that horse, and then done what's natural for a human being, right? We find success. Now we set a new goal and we chase that success. And then we find a new goal and chase that success. You know, that's where the burnout takes place. And I think a lot of horses get get ruined in that regard. A lot of people get ruined in that regard. I absolutely agree. And I've, you know, as when you have a business, you can see, you know, like, well, I worked extra hard this week, so so much more is done. If you try to apply that to horses, you're going to have a reality check real oh, fast. Yeah. Like if I'm working a horse and, you know, 15 minutes in, like you say, you accomplish what you need to that day. If you get greedy and you're like, well, you know what? I can pound through these other seven things. Like, good luck. That horse is going to remind you that that is not how things work in that or in that relationship. And I think that kind of taking exactly that and looking at it through your business or through other aspects of life, like just really being willing to, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, meet, meet that project, meet that horse where yeah, it's at and yeah, do what's required absolutely. today. No, it's great. And I think for folks that are riding, it might be putting a lot of time into their horses and not seeing the result. That might be something you want to consider, not only with your horsemanship, but in life, right? Is just take a mm-hmm. step back for a second and evaluate what is the goals? What are the objectives? How are we going to accomplish them? Put in the honest work to do it, but don't, don't overdo it. Cause at the end of it, it's not, then it's not enjoyable for everybody. And we all have passions whether it be horsemanship or for you and, you know, in the fashion thing, but if, if anything is done in excess, it just, it becomes work and it becomes a job and nobody wants to have a job, right? Exactly. <laughs> and they, you know, I'm training for a half marathon right now and lots of the stuff I've read is like, 
the recovery is what you're after. Like you want to make sure you recover, but you know, your post run recovery, et cetera. And I've been training, like I kind of started in June and then in July, I decided I was going to run a half marathon. And so every week, three to four times a week. And then one week in September, I took the entire week off and I was like, oh crap, this is really going to cost me. And no joke. So far behind. I PR'd my run because I gave my body time a week off, recovered, stepped away from it, went back to it, and it was the best I'd run thus far. That's awesome. I've started to do a little bit more work in running and and trying to educate myself to that. And it's funny that a lot of the coaches that I consult with are just talk about that, right? That your recovery run is almost more important than when you're pushing the envelope or competing. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. If you're not effective in your recovery, and it makes absolute sense. I was listening to another podcast recently, and they had a, an MMA trainer on, and he said, I'm going to talk about a foreign concept, and I know everybody's going to flip their tables over when they hear this, but when you train for MMA or you train for any given athletic sport, he said, you should never be sore. And I thought that makes absolutely no sense because typically we're taught, right, with physical exertion comes tearing down the muscles, the soreness is from the reconstruction of the muscles, and then you're, you know, stronger, faster, whatever. But it makes absolute sense. He talked about, let's say, let's say in 20 reps of any exercise that gets you sore and it takes four days for you to recover. And then at the end of those four days, you do another 20 reps. Well, what happens if you can do 12 reps every single day and not get sore? By the end of a seven day period, by the end of a seven day period, I've done that many more reps. And my body's been conditioned that much more to perform that specific activity. And never once did I take a day off from training. Wow. And for yeah. me, I was like, that makes absolute, I've never heard it a day in my life, but that makes absolute sense. Totally. You know? Yeah. And then you apply that to horses, like we were talking about yeah. how much more Small, powerful can you be? frequent sessions that are positive. And it's incredible yeah. to see when you start to pursue the balance in your horsemanship, how it applies to your life. And it kind of opens up your eyes <laughs> a little bit, right? Absolutely. It's, yeah. it's funny. I always joke that I, you know, a lot of us get into this horsemanship stuff because we want better horses, but the more I work on the horse, I find myself getting better. Yeah. It's like a big personal development journey. Yeah, you're like, oh, <laughs> sweet. <laughs> I feel so selfish because yeah. I'm getting way more out of this than the horse probably is. Yeah, exactly. And I've even found like as much as, um, Right now, I have kind of like two main horses I've been running barrels on. And one of them is kind of one side of my personality and the other one is the other side of my personality. But I've found even down to like when I have them worked on or physical ailments these horses have are very aligned with the physical ailments I have, which is sometimes spooky. But yeah. it's like, yeah, I mean, the the loudest example I had was I was part of the reason I was out all winter is because I had a couple of uh, ovarian cysts and one was the size of a tennis ball and one was the size of a golf ball. Oh Lord. And so the winter went by and come, I think it was March or April, they were gone, which was awesome. And yeah. I'm very thankful for. Absolutely. And my one horse that I'd been riding most of the winter, Ruby, I, I had an osteopath look at her and she said, I think she's what they call an ovary horse where her ovaries can be displaced. So take her to the vet and they can do X, Y, and Z. So I took her to the vet and they said, well, actually, yeah, it is displaced because she has this large ovarian cyst on her one ovary. So we'll do X, Y, and Z for it. And I'm sitting there like, what is going on right now? (laughs) Yeah. Like suddenly my physical health has become not only a priority for me, but a priority for my horses. (laughs) So Yeah. That's absolutely That's crazy. insane. So let's talk a little bit. I know you mentioned the, the brand page, 1912. Um, 
let's talk and develop how that brand came to be in more detail, right? Some some of the journey of that brand and kind of what your hopes are for it moving forward. So like I said, it kind of came from going to couturier school. You hear about, you know, these old, these couturier designers from back in the day. And so couture, I'm going to tell a little bit about this because it's actually super interesting. I was going to say give it's it context because a, a lot of this stuff probably don't, people don't know on that, on this detail. Yeah. So couture is like high end tailoring and to truly become a couturier, you have to live within a certain district of Paris. You have to put out, I think four or six lines a year. You have to be invited by like this board of couturiers and then analyzed. And if you don't continue to follow suit by putting out this many lines or doing X, Y, and Z or following their, um, whatever their stipulations are, you are no longer called a couturier so it's a very like elite group high, high fashion and probably less than one percent of the fashion industry can actually afford to buy couture so it's a very niche niche market and um so going through going to school we often you know you read about coco chanel or some of these older like dior some of those older uh couturier houses that started as a couture house and then also have other more ready-made lines that most people would purchase mm -hmm. and um i had one of my good friends Brittany, growing up she lives in london now and i went to visit her when i was just kind of launching paid or pursue victory and I went to this one fashion museum and they were having a viewing of Coco, some of Coco Chanel's lines. So I actually got to see some of her garments made, like the couturier garments handmade by her firsthand. And we had to all wear our white gloves and you could only touch certain things. And it was quite, oh, wow. uh, yeah, that, and that's kind of how that couture is. So having an interest in that and kind of following that high fashion and older high fashion and then growing up, of course, trick riding and being a part of the Western world and having from a young age, I've always loved the Calgary Stampede and like Old West Cowgirls and the Pendleton Rodeo. And so I came up with this line. I actually, I was talking to my mom one day and I was like, I think if I started a line, I'd call it like Coco 1912. And mom goes, yeah, but what if it was you? What if it was just page 1912? And then I was like, okay, that's what I got to do. Winning. Because <laughs> if I lived in 1912 and rode the train to these rodeos and went from Calgary to Pendleton or Cheyenne, this is what would be in my trunk when I was on the rail car. And so that's kind of how the whole line came to be. And then each of the styles of shirts is named after influential cities in high fashion in Wild West in 1912. So there's like uh, a Pendleton shirt, a Calgary shirt, a Cheyenne shirt, a Paris, a London, um, a Salinas. And then the new style we're coming out with this fall is called Prescott because that was another one yeah. of the original rodeos. Which is an awesome so, town, by the way, if you haven't been. Yes, we've been there. Yeah, I love it. No, it's cool. So, yeah, so that's kind of how that evolved. And then I also, with 1912, had um, I worked with Smith Built Hats in Calgary for a while and designed a hat line, and I launched an accessory line this summer. So it's also been an avenue for me to kind of expand my expand outside of the the shirt business and see what else is out there for fun that I can design. So how do you go about? And we'll just use this Prescott line for the sake of conversation. How do you go about developing a line of clothes, a line of shirts? So. The So for the Prescott style, what we're doing is uh, I have sketches of it done up and 
I go like, I'm always watching and looking at things. So whether it's like out in nature or you're in a clothing store or you're at a rodeo and you see somebody's saddle blanket or something. And I'm, I naturally, like I've had to think about what goes on in my head, but I'm always asking like, what do I like about it? Is it like the colors? Is it the layout? Is it the trim? Is it, what is it that I like? So I start picking these pieces like, well, I like the trim of this, or I like how this frill is, or I like this color pattern. And then I try to see how I can parallel it into designs. So it's, taken me a little while to kind of come up with another design but the Prescott design I did sketches of and then I've taken the sketches with samples to the pattern maker and she then will take will just do it all digitally so I don't need to do any you know pattern drafting or Mm -hmm. anything like that for it so it just becomes kind of altering what is uh what is already in the computer drafting program and that's also why Fortunately for me, making new styles is somewhat easy because it's just taking the shirt pattern and adding or removing or updating it. And uh, and now that I do have this pattern maker in town that works really well with the CAD programs, I'm going to look at um, you know expanding maybe whether it be outerwear or something beyond just the shirts. So how does a – I guess what is the timeline from the start of an idea to – to a line being developed and then actually in production and accessible to a consumer? Um, it, it really depends. Like nowadays, more recently, because I'm using different styles and I'm updating styles or this and that, it's more around the four to six month range. Um, so this but is something I, that you're constantly working on or you have to be constantly working yeah, on. Absolutely. And, you know, something like the Pursue Victory shirts that are very straightforward, the patterns there, the sizings there. Like I, in a couple of years ago, I was kind of in a place with my production house that I would order textiles and say X amount of fabrics coming to you. The embroidery is tone on tone. Let me know when it gets there. You should be able to make this many just go. And so it could be like two month turnaround or a shorter time frame, depending mm-hmm. on what their booking out time was. Um, but you know, like right now I'm, I'm working on my January line and what textiles and what colors and what I'm, we're going to manufacture is kind of already laid out. So, uh, yeah, you got to kind of be ahead of the schedule, which is at first it was kind of hard because what, I don't know what I'm going to want to design when January rolls around yeah. or what winter feels like or what colors or this or that. So you have to kind of be, a, you're ahead of it. So by the time shirts come out, this kind of sounds bad, but I'm over it. Like I've seen these <laughs> things for six months and like just buy them and get them gone. Cause I got cooler stuff in the works now, you yeah, know? Yeah. But then all the clients were like, oh my gosh, Dada is so excited. So I have to remember, you know, when I first developed, what yeah, are they new like? To, it's new to them. It might not be new to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this seems, as you describe all this, I mean, this just seems like an overwhelming process of production and textiles and manufacturing and launch dates and all that stuff. How did this, I mean, what were the first steps in this process for you in developing 1912? Um. I guess the first steps were developing the shirt styles. And when I first looked at doing 1912, I had pretty high standards of like, we're going to have this style of pant and this jacket and this vest. And, you know, the more I worked around it and thought about it, it was like, 
I know and my clients know that shirts are what we're good at. So let's just go with those. And then Mm -hmm. maybe down the line, we can expand. So Mm -hmm. um, that helped me narrow things in. And then I would go in and with my sketches and meet with the manufacturer and have samples done up and make sure that's what they want and order textiles. and, and, uh, And it became kind of a, yeah, kind of a work in progress. Uh, to get it to a place where it was ready to be launched and and then put some of those styles into manufacturing and and the other thing is is like on the so there's the design and the fashion side of things and then the business front and you know business it doesn't matter if you're in the egg industry the fashion industry the horse industry like it's all the same nuts and bolts if you're offering a product there's money out front to get the product and then once you have the product like it's a just the cycle of cash flow i guess within the business but i think that's so, a huge deficit especially in the western industry right with a lot of these trainers and clinicians and things of that sort like they're good at the given task or the given skill but the business side of things is where most of us fall short in in understanding yeah. and developing yeah and that's um that's a real balance because lots of times especially like you say, in the Western industry, or when it's somebody who is doing something they're passionate about, it's so much more fun to be in the design world and looking at textiles or new shirt designs, or then looking at like the number crunching, the marketing schedule, the release schedule, the sales cycle, the shipping procedure, like all of that. Um, And I mean, again, kind of a God thing. Before I started my clothing line, I worked in a startup tech company uh, in the oil and gas industry. And we shared an office with this company that was kind of like, it'd be comparable to Shark Tank. They would take in oh, really? business or business ideas and they would analyze them. They would do market research. They would go over them. And I became friends with these girls in the office and we'd go for lunch every week and talk business. Yeah. And then when I started this, they were like my on-call business people. And to this day, like I think about Tegan and some of the information she shared with me. And it was like, that was an amazing experience. Gold, like, holy, yeah. yeah, was I not set up for that? And, you know, I grew up in an entrepreneur house. Like, my parents uh, published the Canadian Angus magazine, and my dad has always worked or worked for himself since I can remember. And so that's been a very, like, common thing in my world is to be mm-hmm. self-employed and mm-hmm. run your business and and wear all the hats. And um, honestly, I love business. Like I love business as much as I do designing, if not more. So I'm very fortunate that way. And uh, yeah, just kind of putting in place, like I said, those systems to help me stay on track with things and timelines. And and then as with any entrepreneur, it's really just <laughs> taking changes with the flow and making the best of things because things never go as you plan. So it's constantly changing and adjusting and changing and adjusting to get where you're going or to meet some of the goals you have in mind. I cannot believe how busy all of this seems like. I don't know how you have time for anything else. It's it's just overwhelming. And you ride horses on top of this and, you know, help Matt with some of the horses and things of that sort. It's just absolutely incredible to listen to this, all of this process. And obviously I am probably one of the most uneducated folks on this earth when it comes to fashion. Um, but it's enlightening <laughs> to hear how all this stuff comes comes to light because it's parts of, I mean, shoot, you never think about this throwing on a jacket or a pair of jeans that all this work went into, or at some point, probably all this work went into to putting that pair together. Yeah. Yeah. Right down to like with every style that I have manufactured, I'm choosing the thread color, buttons or snaps, embroidery color, what, co- you know, size of cuff, size of collar, size, everything like 
literally everything is at my cusp to alter and change. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, now that I can, it's almost easier now that I have something, a bit of a, a template for manufacturing, of course, it's much easier to go off of. And, and I was also like, without knowing it, I did something really smart with this clothing line. Lots of times when designers launch a line, it's solely like, here's my designs and my creative expression. Do you like it or not? But I came into the market with something functional. So it wasn't anything to do with my designs. It was like, this product fits you for the job you're doing. And I gained a clientele off of something that was functional instead of my artistic, artistic expression. So then when I took what was functional, I expanded into my artistic expression. Not everybody likes page 1912 shirts, but those people still buy Pursue Victory. But yeah. the people that like Pursue Victory and page 1912 are now buying multiples or they're buying the new ones. And and so it's expanded my market. But I think if I would have just gone to the market with page 1912, it, it would have been a lot harder of an uphill climb because that's not for everybody. And I think too, in my uneducated opinion on this, I mean, a lot of the Western industry is founded, the clothing is purchased more on function than it is on looks, if that makes sense, right? So for oh, you to for, sure. for you to incorporate function into clothes that actually look good as well, right? It's it's mm-hmm. something that's probably never been seen or has less frequently been seen in the Western world. Absolutely. And you know, now when I started it five years ago, I think one, maybe Ariat had an arena fit shirt, but mm-hmm. other than that, there wasn't anything. And now there's a few more that are better about their, you know, longer sleeves or longer bodice, which is great. And the other advantage I have is I manufacture in Calgary. So anybody who is concerned about the environment, like I could get on soapboxes <laughs> for a long time, but <laughs> the fashion industry is hands down the worst on the environment, oil and gas transfer whatever like fashion industry will blow them all out of the water and people really? don't necessarily understand that i had no idea because if if you think about it like so forever 21 are you familiar with that business a mm-hmm. company yeah so they're going out of business right now which is an interesting interesting to me but you take a shirt from forever 21 and it's maybe 10 percent cotton 20 percent cotton the rest is rayon or something else and you buy it for five dollars and then you track the lifespan of that shirt so that shirt probably came from overseas, either Bangladesh or China or Thailand, where it was manufactured. So that shirt's traveled in a plastic bag from, say, the Calgary Forever 21 back to China to a factory that emis- emits a lot of uh, emissions. And people who are sewing it, maybe underage, maybe not, probably low wage, that textile they're sewing out of probably comes maybe the cotton comes from japan maybe it comes back from the u.s so then you track it all the way back there making that textile took so much water especially the synthetic fibers and creating a synthetic textile takes so much water puts so much pollution into the water and so then you track it back to even where was that cotton grown or where was the basis of that maybe it was you know texas cotton that was grown and it sprayed they sprayed the environment or they sprayed the crop and they got the yield and then they shipped it on a ship over to china then it you know like when you track a five dollar t-shirt and then the kicker is you buy it, you wear it three times, it pills and twists, and you throw it in the landfill. And then, like, what was the whole point of that shirt if you're going to throw it in the landfill? That's you a know? crazy, crazy, crazy perspective I've given zero consideration to. <laughs> and but it's true. It's I, a reality. Oh, absolutely. And I know there's a, 
a girl who barrel races here in Canada and she's super handy. So I love it that she wears my shirts. She's had this shirt from like probably four or five years and it still fits her great, still looks great on her. She wears it probably every other weekend through the summer because the quality is there. That shirt will last her another two or three years. But if she were to buy something that was made overseas or manufactured on a mass scale and maybe isn't sewn right and twist the seams twist on her, like you're going to get maybe one season out of another shirt and then it's in the landfill or you send it, you know, to wherever you cut it up and use it for cloths, whatever. But your time frame when you when you invest in quality, it pays for itself. And I'm that's a huge proponent of that. Like the old old adage, you pay, you get what you pay for. Like I'm a yeah. firm believer of it. Firm believer. Yeah, and so something probably, hopefully, circa next fall or next spring, I'm looking to kind of move towards is having a a recycle program. So if you know you've had this shirt for five years bring it back to me. I'll give you one at 50% off and then putting them towards like women in need who are going into the workforce and don't have clothes. So they can still get use of a nice collared cuff shirt. And then you get a benefit for investing in something good. And now you have something new to wear. I really like that. So it kind of creates like a, you know, a conscious flow with the, but you know, we as consumers, we vote with our dollar. So if you're shopping at Forever 21 and you wear the shirt three times and then you feel good because you took it to the Goodwill, but in reality, they probably throw half those clothes out. Like, <laughs> yeah. we, yeah, we need to be, truth. yeah, we need to be conscious of that. And yes, shop, you know, buying Pursue Victory or Page 1912 is helping a small business, but there's also huge benefits that, they're literally manufactured in Calgary and there's Calgarians that pay their taxes in Calgary making their income by making your shirt. So it's like a nice, it's a nice aspect to it, whether or not people pay a lot of attention to it. That's a great homegrown product. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely interesting. This is cool. This is a bunch of stuff that I just, a whole world I never even knew existed. <laughs> it's awesome. So what is, what does the future hold for 1912? What are some directions you want to take? Maybe what are you, what are some of your chances you're going to take or places you're going to roll the um, dice here in the future? Well, I've had an opportunity, like I say, to be in Hudson's Bay and uh, we're kind of in some discussion. It's looking like that might blossom into some other opportunities, which would be fantastic. Um, and then as far as I have other designs coming out and I'm looking at moving into more of cyclical production. So meaning every quarter or bi-monthly, we're going to have new styles released. And I've been kicking around this idea of maybe a subscription with it, where if you sign up, you get these shirts at a discounted rate and you're going to get one in your mailbox every two to three months. Um, and I would just like, really at the end of the day, it would be great if I did have a sales rep or somebody to help me out. But I think it's pretty cool if I can create a business that is so systematic that it can be run very efficiently. And that's going to give me the kind of standpoint to do more with my horses and kind of go more down that road, which is why I kind of set out to have my own business in the first place. So I think everything seems to be pretty on track for that. You know, you, I do have my glitches with production and scheduling and your own stresses day to day. But that stuff's going to happen, but, right? I mean... Oh, absolutely. Right? It doesn't it's, matter how big the outfit is. You're going to have... There's going to be hang-ups. So there's the human error factor, things of that sort. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a point when I started, I was like, I want to be, you know, the next Wrangler, like just this huge company. And I've... I don't know. I just kind of rethought that and I... 
I admire Wrangler. I admire all those large companies. And I would prefer to have a company I could, you know, serve people with a great product, be environmentally conscious with it, make a good income and be able to go rodeo or train horses or work with Matt or, you know, like have my own life too, a a separate life. So yeah, we'll kind of see how that plays out and I'll let the business grow as big as it wants to grow. But I don't think I have this burning desire to have a giant corporate office anymore. That's for sure. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head right there when you talk about letting the business grow where it grows, um, placing the priority on the sustainability, right. And Mm -hmm. the, the systematic operation of the business is definitely going to give you more liberty than being the next fashion tycoon with this huge, huge company that's going to soak up more time than what you have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when, I mean, I love fashion, I love designing shirts, I love business, I love all that, but I also really love my horses and running barrels and roping and working with Matt. And like, there's a lot of other things I enjoy too. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is my life too. I didn't just come here to be a slave to my job. (laughs) (laughs) Which so many, so many of us have done in our lives, right? Yeah, for sure. Me included. (laughs) I would say I tip my hat to you because the whole the whole entrepreneur thing has got to be so scary just because the unpredictability of it, right? Versus a 40 hour nine to five guaranteed check showing up all the time. But um, the passion is there. Obviously we've heard it over the last almost hour talking with you. It's absolutely incredible to hear how an idea has, has blossomed into a, a successful brand. Thank you. I was just talking to a girl yesterday and she has a business. She started herself and both of us laughed and we're like, it's a good thing I was just like naive enough to go down this road as yeah. far as I am, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause now it's like, okay, well, there's no turning back. Like I've, now I have something I can work with, but if I would have probably known from day one, what this would have taken, I think I would have <laughs> thought twice about it and any entrepreneur though, they do it totally yes. worth it. Yes. But there are, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So, as we, as we wind every show or as we come to the close of every show, I like to give every guest the opportunity to kind of share their legacy or words that they live by. So for you and your journey, whether it's personally or professionally, what is something you would like to share with somebody who might be coming up in the business that you're working in or, or maybe just a few miles down the, down the trail that you just traveled? Um, you know, something I always go back to is when there's a will, there's a way. And like we've talked about, life isn't without adversity. Their day-to-day challenge, you know, maybe a longer year challenge. But at the end of it, if you are willing to be resilient and be open to opportunities and options, like if things don't always pan out the way you think, but there's greater things that could come from it. For example, like when I decided I had two bad wrecks trick riding and I decided, you know, might be time to hang up the towel within, I think I was even driving home from that rodeo. And it was like, I would love to get into the fashion business and look at the store. It's open for me. So I think just when there's a will, there's a way and be open to pivoting and changing, whether you're training horses or starting a business and, um, yeah, carry on, follow your dreams. There's, there's lots out there to explore and, and enjoy it along the way. It's incredible. So for folks who have listened to this episode and want to know more about page 1912, where can they follow you? Where can they find out more about the clothes, website, social media, things of that sort? Um, Our website, you can either go to page1912.com and that's P-A-I-G-E 1912.com or pursuevictory.com. It'll all take you to one spot. And then I'm on Facebook. Both brands are on Facebook and we're also on Instagram. Uh, 
page 1912, or, or it's actually the brand page 1912 on Instagram and pursue victory on Instagram. And then I'm myself on Instagram as well. Um, I think I'm probably a little bit more lively on Instagram than I am Facebook, but with the business pages, I do my best to work back and forth. Good stuff. Well, Paige, I thank you very much for sitting down the last hour or so and talking fashion with us. It's been absolutely interesting to just hear about the process and the brand and how it's come to be and get to know you a little bit more than our previous conversations up there at Heart of the Horse. We wish you the best in all your future endeavors. And if there's anything we could do to help, please let me know. Thank you. And thank you very much for this opportunity to chat with you. Anytime. Have a good one, Paige. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.